Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Thanks for downloading the latest in-depth interview podcast from PeterBCollins.com, where whistleblowers come to share. Today we're going to talk to John Kiriakou and Joe Hickman about their new book about Abu Zubaydah. It's the convenient terrorist. Abu Zubaydah remains at Guantanamo, where he is expected to die without ever being charged or being given a trial. And the history of his capture, his torture, the mistaken identity, the mistaken notion that he was the number three of Al-Qaeda, it all comes out in this powerful new book. And Joe Hickman and John Kiriakou don't hold back. I think you'll find this very interesting. And listen all the way to the end when both of them explain how the so-called journalist who now works at The Intercept and who has burned both Hickman, Kiriakou, and most recently the NSA leaker reality winner, they, uh, they don't hold back in describing the work of Matthew Cole. Kiriakou flatly says that's why he went to prison. This podcast is made possible by subscriptions from people like Paul Tomaselli, Abby McMillan, Natalie Real, and many others. I'd like you to join them. Come on over to PeterBCollins.com. There's a menu button. You click on it, then choose Become a Subscriber. It takes you to the sign-up page where, in minutes, you can take out a new subscription and help support my work. Thanks for listening, and thank you for your financial help. Today on the Peter B. Collins podcast, two fine Americans who blew the whistle on various aspects of torture, confinement, and degradation of fellow human beings. John Kiriakou and Joseph Hickman. We've talked with them both separately before. They've co-authored a new book about Abu Zubaydah, and we're going to talk about it right here. A revolution never come with a warning. A revolution never sends you an omen. A revolution just arrived like the morning. Bring the alarm, we come to wake up the snoring. They're telling you to never worry about the future. They're telling you to never worry about the torture. Ten years from now, is anybody going to bother your fire? Ten years from now, is anybody going to bother? That's Michael Franti and Spearhead. A song from back around 2005 called Yell Fire. Some of the lyrics say, don't bother to think about the future. Don't bother to think about the torture. And many people think of America's torture program as something in the rearview mirror. And maybe it is. 
But with Donald Trump in, in control uh, and his threat to commit new prisoners to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, we have to be concerned that torture could return to the American arsenal. There's a powerful new book out that tells us the backstory and uh, a lot of new information about Abu Zubaydah. It's called The Convenient Terrorist, Two Whistleblowers' Stories of Torture, Terror, Secret Wars, and CIA Lies. Joe Hickman is the author of uh, several previous books, including The Burn Pits, and uh, he sat for a podcast interview about The Burn Pits a little over a year ago. John Kiriakou has been a frequent contributor to this broadcast, and he his uh, most recent solo book is Doing Time Like a Spy, and that podcast is uh, available right now at peterbcollins.com. John Kiriakou, Joe Hickman, great to have you both with me today on the Peter B. Collins Show. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank and you. let me start with you, Joe. Uh, you participated in the transfer of Abu Zubaydah when many so-called uh, high-value detainees were brought out of the CIA black sites and uh, brought to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, where you were working uh, on the guard staff. Uh, tell us a little bit about why you are so interested in bringing out the facts about Abu Zubaydah. Well, when we... when you that uh, it was actually September 9th, 2006, was when 14 high-value detainees arrived at the island on Guantanamo. Uh, I was part of the operation that moved them from the airport to a, a secret location where, where most of them are still housed today, including Abu Zubaydah. Uh, I, found them, I found them very intriguing. I was, I was curious about them almost right from the beginning, because when I was there... We were told that we had the worst of the worst prisoners in Guantanamo. Uh, absolute all Al Qaeda, all, ta- all or Taliban, and they were the worst of the worst. I was start- starting to have doubts already as soon as I arrived on the island a few months earlier. But when the 14 high value came on, I received a briefing, and the briefing from higher up said that we're going to keep these 14 separate from the other detainees because. If the other detainees knew that they were there or knew who they were, they would kill them. And I said, okay, we have 14. We're supposed to have the worst of the worst. What are these guys, the worst of the worst of the worst? And why is none of them getting along? I asked the question in the briefing and was shut down pretty quick. Uh, But uh, that was probably my first interest in Abu Zubaydah and then later on. Uh, as a researcher and a private investigator, I went to work for the Abu Zubaydah habeas defense team, mm-hmm. which really shed a lot of light on the on the issue of Abu Zubaydah as well. Now, John Kiriakou, you had uh, one of the earliest contacts with Abu Zubaydah. You were assigned by the CIA as a leader of the counterterrorism effort in Pakistan, and uh, you were there when he was picked up. Yeah, I was there when he was captured. He was shot by a Pakistani policeman and severely wounded. When he came out of his coma uh, a day or so later, uh, I was there at his bedside, and we, we sat and spoke for the next 56 hours. Wow. And what was your first impression of this guy? Because you had been told that he was a very high-ranking leader of al-Qaeda, which we now know is completely false. Correct. Uh, we were told that he was the number three in al-Qaeda. That was just simply not true. He actually had never joined al-Qaeda. 
He had never pledged fealty to Osama bin Laden. He was a bad guy. He was doing work on behalf of al-Qaeda. He, was, he, he had helped to create and manage the al-Qaeda training camps in southern Afghanistan. He, he ran uh, al-Qaeda safe houses. He was vetting potential jihadis for al-Qaeda. But he had never actually joined the group, and he certainly was not the number three. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you have the, the director of the CIA saying he's the number three, and you have the vice president of the United States saying he's the number three, and you don't know any better, then to you he's the number three. <laughs> and, and and this does become uh, a really dark comedy of errors in too many ways, where uh, they were so eager to put some points on the scoreboard and show that they were cracking down on this al-Qaeda organization, uh, that they really would, uh, you know, use false leads or uh, un- uncorroborated intelligence uh, to try to pursue some of these individuals. And we know that of the almost 800 men who spent some time at Guantanamo, the vast majority of them were innocent schlubs who were picked up for the bounty payments that uh, we dropped in impoverished parts of the world. So uh, it, it had to be just a ghastly experience for you, uh, a committed uh, member of the CIA, determined to protect the United States, but you were being sent on fool's errands by our misinformed leaders. Oh, and it was worse when it came to some of the, the former Special Forces people who were, who were seconded to the CIA. I can't tell you how many weddings uh, we bombed because either a drone or a satellite saw a tall man wearing white. Well, you know, Osama bin Laden was not the only tall man in Afghanistan wearing white, and indeed we weren't even sure if he was in Afghanistan. So you're right, it was a comedy of errors. Unfortunately, that comedy resulted in the deaths of of hundreds of innocent people. Well, and John, you paid a price because uh, years later uh, you acknowledged that we had tortured people, and uh, the retaliation against you was uh, very strong, very swift, and uh, it led you to, uh, what, over two years in prison, and that's what you recounted in your book, Doing Time Like a Spy. Yes, I was the first former or current uh, CIA officer to say that the CIA was torturing its prisoners. And literally within 24 hours, the CIA had asked the Justice Department to file charges against me. Uh, that investigation took four years, and finally I was charged with five felonies, including three counts of espionage for talking to ABC News. And, um, and in the beginning, the Justice Department uh, was seeking 45 years in prison. I, I was lucky. I ended up getting 30 months. But uh, 45 years was a death sentence, and they meant for that to be a warning to any other potential CIA whistleblower that unless you want what Kiriakou got, you know, dead of old age in a prison cell, you better keep your mouth shut. And they didn't even give you a walk-on part in Zero Dark Thirty. <laughs> I didn't even get that. Not even a <laughs> consulting credit. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you know, to me, Zero Dark Thirty uh, was factually inaccurate, and it, it spun a lot of myths. But the most dangerous part of it was that it was pro-CIA, pro-torture propaganda, again, trying to advance this idea that torture really does work. And, you know, we've got so much evidence that counters that, yet uh, those who go to the dark side uh, believe in these these dark uh, approaches to trying to force information out of people. 
And, uh, you know, as as we know, Ali Soufan, the FBI agent who used uh, uh, rapport approaches with Abu Zubaydah, uh, got information out of him before the orders came to waterboard Abu Zubaydah. Uh, and, and yet uh, the officials in Washington at the White House and uh, the top dogs at the CIA uh, just insisted that uh, they could beat it out of these people. And that's one of the biggest lies of this entire sick chapter in American history. Uh, and that lie was perpetuated in that awful movie, Zero Dark Thirty, that it was the torture that led to the capture of Osama bin Laden. Not the capture, but the killing of Osama bin Laden. It's just simply not true. You know, we've been saying, Joe and I have been saying for, for years, that uh, it was Ali Soufan who had gathered this actionable intelligence from Abu Zubaydah well before the CIA in the form of, of uh, contractors Mitchell and Jessen began torturing him. And indeed, once they started torturing him, he clammed up and never provided any intelligence ever again. All the intelligence, the intelligence that saved American lives and that disrupted future attacks, was collected by Ali Soufan. The new book, Convenient Terrorist, includes a foreword by Jason Leopold, and I know Jason well. We've been uh, collaborating for many years. And he had almost an obsession-like focus with the Abu Zubaydah case. He tracked down Zubaydah's uh, younger brother, who is very different from uh, 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 Abu Zubaydah, uh, and uh, lives in Florida, drives fancy cars, that kind of thing. Uh, tell me a little bit, Joe, how much did uh, Jason Leopold's coverage of Abu Zubaydah inform your own interest and uh, some of the information that's in the new book? Well, Abu Zubaydah, um, Jason Leopold's coverage on Abu Zubaydah was terrific. And the book wouldn't have been possible probably without the reporting that, that Jason Leopold did. I think you'd agree, John. Oh, I agree. Um, I think he deserves the Pulitzer Prize. Hmm. Yeah. He, uh, his FOIAs that, that he, he was able to pull up, he, he was able to get some FOIAs that he only shared with, uh, with me. He hasn't even published yet. And I was able to use those FOIAs, uh, through what, what was said in those FOIAs in the book, which gave us a lot of new material. Jason, uh, Jason's incredible when it comes to uh, Abu Zubaydah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, gentlemen, now that your book is published, uh, you know that I consider this to be a very significant story. Uh, not only the, uh, the true story of Abu Zubaydah, but what you reveal about the uh, torture uh, regimes that we embraced. Uh, but this is a climate where a lot of people have moved on, as I referenced in the introduction, uh, with Trump in control and promising to commit new prisoners to Guantanamo, a guy who has said he believes that torture works and has only dialed back because uh, James Mattis, his defense secretary, uh, has, has pushed back on that. But uh, I, I understand that Alex Jones gave you an interview. I'm glad you survived. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, Joe, tell me to what extent uh, you're getting interest from the mainstream media uh, in this important new book. Well, I don't, uh, I don't know. So, I mean, the, the media coverage on the book is, is slow. We do have some things coming out with, with some media outlets soon. It, it's, it's really, uh, I think, like this one and, and the book, The Burn Pits, and my first book, Murder at Camp Delta, which you covered that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, these, these stories that seem so important 
have taken a, a back page, uh, have been on the back page of most of these major media outlets. And, and let's see how this one does. They, they, they would rather report on, on the Russian issue and things like that, but I don't understand. These things affect people's lives. Uh, the, the mainstream media is funny on how they stream news. I still haven't figured it out yet. And, and John, what's your sense here? Because uh, we're talking on the last day of June. Uh, the big story in the news is a Twitter war between Trump and uh, the Morning Joe co-hosts on MSNBC at a time when the Senate is still working to deny health care coverage to millions of Americans. Uh, that, that is such a central issue to the lives and the future of our citizens. And yet we're diverted into this, uh, you know, did she have a facelift? And, right. you know, is Trump, uh, uh, you know, flashing his sexist side again? And, and it, it is so infuriating that, that critical information gets buried behind all this bullshit. So true, Peter. So true. And, you know, I feel the same way about the, uh, about the, the torture regime, and, and so does Joe. This is one of the reasons why we wrote this book. You look at these uh, public opinion polls that come out regularly, routinely, and every single time a clear majority of Americans supports the torture program. Um, I think that that's because Americans don't understand what torture is. Americans don't understand that it's illegal both according to U.S. law and international law which has the force of law in the United States. Uh, so we, we wrote this book in part to try to educate people who you know, might decide to take an hour or two to sit down and read it. I guess they didn't pay attention to the Senate torture report or to the CIA Inspector General's report. We're going to give it a try here. In terms of the media outlets, I, you know, like Joe said, this has been actually very frustrating. We've, we've had a wonderful reception from... Um, the progressive press, and what I call the serious press, like uh, ProPublica, for example, there's one major news magazine that's, that's thinking about excerpting it, but it's already been delayed. And, uh, you know, unless you're talking about Justin Bieber finding Jesus or this fight between Jay-Z and Beyonce, I, I think people just don't want real news, hard-hitting news that's that's ugly and dark and uh, and exposes waste, fraud, abuse, and illegality. Now, I have a lot of criticisms of the New York Times in this current era, but to their credit, a week, uh, week and a half ago, uh, they uh, gave pretty heavy treatment and provided video clips of the court depositions of James Mitchell and Bruce Jessen. And uh, this appears to be the only attempt at accountability for the uh, illegal... Uh, torture programs that violated uh, both our domestic laws and international treaties. And uh, the Times, you know, also followed up with an editorial. Uh, and I give them credit for sharing this information, for making it available. Uh, but we don't seem to see the corporate media pick it up. They're much more interested in the food fights. Uh, and television just uh, ignores this uh, almost entirely. Yet uh, what Mitchell and Jessen chillingly testify to, in my opinion, is an attempt at a Nuremberg defense. Uh, Jessen hasn't really been speaking publicly. He's allowed Mitchell, uh, uh, our friend Jason Leopold, uh, got a great interview with him that uh, was on Vice uh, a year or two ago. 
but, uh, you know, what they're talking about should be front and center. And uh, I, I think an example should be made of them because the callousness and detachment which uh, they used to describe the torture techniques that they devised and helped uh, supervise the implementation of, I mean, they were directly involved, uh, these are war crimes. And yet it, it really gets soft-pedaled. Uh, and it's just kind of, oh, yeah, that was then, and uh, gosh, we've got so much else going on right now. Joe, uh, what, what's your comment on that? Uh, I, I did see the New York Times report, and, and I did uh, listen to Mitchell and, and Jessen, and I, uh, I really uh, thought one, one major thing they really left out is they, they, they received $80 million to do this. Mm-hmm. And... That uh, $80 million to, to do a program that just did not work was was the story, and that's what, what should have been there. They're psychologists. They know they broke their, their ethics uh, on even attempting this, uh, this reverse uh, seer engineering uh, type of interrogation. It was, it was absolutely – so many questions weren't asked, and so many – and again, it just goes to people not being educated. Even our even our officials are not educated in this subject. They they just needed to ask the right question. I was pretty frustrated with it, actually. Mm-hmm. And John, you actually uh, you know shared workspace uh, uh, with Mitchell and Jessen while you were in Pakistan, and uh, you helped trundle Abu Zubaydah into the aircraft where he was dispatched to the uh, black site where they administered the uh, torture techniques. Right. Uh, uh, tell me your reaction to the coverage of their trial and what they're disclosing, the arguments they're trying to make. I think that the arguments that they're trying to make, that they were just following orders and that they were just contractors being told what to do by the CIA and by the Defense Department, um, have been tried and have failed. Uh, we saw it in 1945 and 1946. I was just following orders is not a defense, especially for two psychologists who, who know better, who have taken an oath to first do no harm. Um, they know better than that. They did this for the money. They did this for more than $80 million of the taxpayers' money, uh, not for any other reason. They say it was for patriotism. It's nonsense. They did it for $80 million. But you, you listen to these depositions, and it's really... It's really striking. The, the sociopathy just oozes out of them. It's like they can't help themselves. They, they're, they're unable to, to make a human connection with people. They're so cold and calculating in the retelling of the story that I think that in and of itself is an indictment of them. And I think it's Mitchell who said, yeah, you know, waterboarding sucks. But he uh, refused, uh, in responding to questions, to acknowledge that it causes pain. I I mean, that's just bizarre. And we know from the Senate torture report, which I would remind everybody who's listening, was based solely on primary source CIA documents. This isn't just some, you know, politically driven left-wing document. This is is based on, on original CIA documents. We know from the Senate torture report that Abu Zubaydah was waterboarded so severely that his heart stopped beating, and he had to be revived. We know that in another waterboarding session, he went into convulsions. So is it painful? Sure, it's painful. But it's worse than painful. It's deadly, 
and they deny any of that. There's a new report out from Physicians for Human Rights, which makes the case that we engaged in human experimentation, that by having medical doctors and psychologists present during these torture sessions, they're called enhanced interrogation, I know, but these these are torture tactics that were applied. And as medical doctors would say, well, hold off, uh, you know, let, let's uh, let him breathe for a couple of minutes here, and then we'll whack him again. Uh, right. This this really does compromise our medical profession, and it also, I think, is a prima facie case that the U.S. engaged in human experimentation, the kind of stuff that, you know, we demonized Dr. Mengele for in the Nazi death camps. You took the words right out of my mouth. You know, Mengele's research uh, survived. It survived for generations. And there was, there was a moral and ethical uh, debate that went on over those generations over what to do with this information. It was collected in such a horrific uh, way. What do you do with it? And finally, uh, authorities in Germany decided to destroy it. So look at the situation we have with <clears throat> Mitchell and Jessen, the torture program, and uh, physicians from the CIA's Office of Medical Services. Now, there, there were a couple of cables that we saw in the Senate torture report where doctors were writing back to CIA headquarters and saying, hey, uh, Jim and Bruce uh, are doing some things that many of the other uh, doctors here think is probably unethical, but they stayed around. They made sure that Abu Zubaydah and other prisoners did not go into cardiac arrest, that they remained healthy enough to be tortured again. So at the very least, those CIA physicians must lose their medical licenses. I, I, here we are 15, 16 years later, and the AMA has been silent on this issue. I think it's a, an atrocity. Well, and uh, Dr. Jeff Kay, a psychologist and member of the APA, American Psychologist uh, Association, uh, he and many other principled individuals uh, led an effort to really uh, adopt a strong ethics position and to repudiate the collaboration that executives of the APA had engaged in with the CIA to soften policies in order to enable professionals to participate in torture tactics. Uh, Peter, I, I, let me interrupt you on that. I, you're right, and I, I'm proud to say that I was a member of the committee that, that rewrote the APA um, uh, regulations. Uh, and what we ended up doing was saying that no APA member psychologist could participate in a custodial national security interrogation. But the APA membership and the APA leadership fought us tooth and nail. And again, here we are two years after we wrote those new protocols, and they still have not been implemented. That's John Kiriakou. His co-author, Joe Hickman, is with us as well. Their new book is The Convenient Terrorist. It is uh, quite revealing about Abu Zubaydah. And gentlemen, let me get to the biggest takeaway I had, and that is that there are two people who use the name Abu Zubaydah. And just to keep it clear, uh, Zayn, Z-A-Y-N, is the man who has been in U.S. custody since 2002. And Maher, uh, is a cousin of his who also used the name Abu Zubaydah. At what point, uh, John, did the government become aware of the the two individuals and a possible mistaken identity with Zane? Um, you know what? It was it was years after we we caught Zane uh, at the CIA. We frankly had no idea that 
there were two Abu Zubaydahs, and that they both had something to do with al-Qaeda. But to tell you the truth, this was Joe Hickman's brilliant research that was able to put this whole story together. Uh, I would venture to say that, that what Joe ended up writing in this book uh, is, is far more than what exists in CIA's classified files. So, Joe, take over here and explain to our listeners uh, how you were able to discover this. Well, I was able to discover it first by, I was reading a RAND report that uh, they wrote about, uh, Abu Zubaydah was just in a one-liner saying that he was one of the, he was a high-ranking al-Qaeda official, and he was, uh, he was, you know, uh, part of the chief of operations on the 9-11, you know, the twin, uh, the towers. And I thought, where are they getting this from? So I started researching the analyst at the Rand Corporation and that, that wrote this report and seeing what else they've written. I found one of the analysts, a senior analyst at, at the Rand Corporation, wrote a biography on Abu Zubaydah. That biography was completely wrong from what I already knew about Abu Zubaydah. They said he grew up in Palestine. He was born in Saudi Arabia, grew up in Palestine, uh, met al-Zwahari when he was a young boy and then went to fight the Soviets. Uh, he was married. It was all wrong. None of this was correct about Zubaydah. Some was. So I started thinking, where did they get this information? And I come to find out that this is biography is what they were using uh, a lot of the three-letter agencies when they were hunting Osama bin Laden. I mean, not Osama bin Laden, but Abu Zubaydah. Mm-hmm. So I uh, I started looking into how could they get all this information wrong. Come to find out, Abu Zubaydah had a cousin, and after talking to the family and and everything else, he had a cousin that was born in Saudi Arabia but moved to the, to Palestine and was raised and and did fight the Soviets, and it that part of the biography fit his cousin Maher that lived in Florida who was a pilot, and uh. It just snowballed from there. I started looking into Maher's life. Like I said, he was he was a pilot. He lived within he lived within a mile of of the nine eleven hijackers. He lived when he first arrived. He lived within a mile from Ali Muhammad, one of the best spies Osama bin Laden had in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was uh, he was actually uh, he bought, he went to Montana. He moved to Montana. This was a Leopold boy. I found this in and. Uh, he bought a uh, he bought a ranch, a five thousand acre ranch with six hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of uh, travelers checks, hmm. and he was um, this ranch blew up right before nine eleven. He was arrested after nine eleven. He was indicted on the nine eleven investigation by the FBI, known as the Pent Bomb investigation, and none of this was shared with the other agencies or even other departments of the FBI to other agencies. It was. The communication just did not get through, and I was just shocked. There was two Abu Zubaydahs. They conflated their biography, and they were really looking for two people one time. It just The point of this whole chapter was really just to show how horrible our intelligence was at the time. Well, it you, was really bad. You also exposed that a translation error uh, produced additional confusion on the difference between uh, a phrase translated to English as the martyr's house and the alternate phrase, the house of martyrs. Explain yes. that. 
Well, the, the, there, there's a house of martyrs, and, and a lot of times in the FBI and the CIA, they, they thought there was only one house of martyrs. But there was actually, when they're talking, I can prove with their documents through, through, uh, through an interpreter I used from the U.N., an Arabic interp- translator, that shows that, that they were actually talking about two different houses. And one house was actually, uh, the House of Martyrs was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. The other one was Abu Zubaydah. I'm not saying Abu Zubaydah was a, was a nice house, but it was a safe house because they did run al-Qaeda uh, operatives through to get to his training camp. Mm-hmm. But this was a big mistake considering that one was run by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Now, John, I want to turn to you for a moment, because another thing that I picked up from the book is the uh, the information or the demand that came from the CIA indiv- uh, officers or employees who were willing to participate in the torture uh, processes that were uh, consulted on by Mitchell and Jessen. Uh, the book ex- uh, explains that there were more than a dozen who were trained in these so-called enhanced interrogation techniques. And they sent a message to Washington before they would agree to torture Abu Zubaydah, uh, seeking assurances that he would remain in isolation for the remainder of his life. So they knew uh, the implications of what they were being ordered to do. And they demanded this kind of protection, uh, which I don't think is available under American law and the Constitution. But it seems to explain why uh, Abu Zubaydah is a forever prisoner who has not been charged and is never expected to be tried. Yeah, that's exactly right. There was, there was a lot of discussion at CIA headquarters about protecting the torturers well before the torture ever began. And um, even when, when the torture did begin and, um, and people were sort of waiting their turn to, to go into the little room and do their thing, they were still worried that public opinion would change, control of the White House would change, and they would be left out to dry. And so they actively sought these assurances from headquarters that they would never be charged with a crime, and that Abu Zubaydah would never be released and would never be allowed to speak to the press or to anybody else in order to explain what the CIA had done to him. Now, how can we justify that? I, I, I mean, it, it's just so much outside the bounds. It, it's a mafia-style uh, omerta agreement. It is, and it's, it's frankly unjustifiable. There's nothing in the law, there's nothing in the Constitution that allows the CIA to essentially collude with the Justice Department in order to, um, to proactively uh, protect human rights violators. Yet that's exactly what happened. And uh, as we look at this, and John, I, I'm not trying to single you out or, or uh, put any special pressure on you, but, but you know too much. You know the people who participated in the torture. You know, uh, you know, you had contact with Mitchell and Jessen. You certainly saw some of the orders that were given that led to the uh, implementation of the torture regimes. And uh, I, I wonder how you wrestle with this in terms of your own moral obligation. Uh, we don't have a truth commission. We don't have a forum for you to testify to identify these individuals. 
but you must carry a certain inner weight uh, knowing what you know. I do, and that's what led me to blow the whistle on the, on the program in the first place. I, I'm happy to say that, you know, not all was lost. I've spoken to Senator John McCain about this. I spoke to the Senate Armed Services Committee. I, I spoke to the uh, Democratic staff on the um, Senate Intelligence Committee. So I was able to, to get my concerns and complaints and my information to the right people. But with that said, you know, Congress is controlled by the Republicans. The White House is controlled by not just a Republican, but a Republican who supports these atrocities. And so I'm not sanguine that anything good is going to come of it in the end. Mm-hmm. And do you believe there's ever a day when you'll be able to uh, tell us everything you know? No, I don't believe that day will ever come. Wow, that's uh, that, that that's hard. I, I'm I'm trying to wrap my brain around that. It's and, awful, and it, it's hard. It, it's it's unbelievable, and and I think it's really important if we have time. Go ahead, Joe. I, I think I think I think John's attacks actually started when they first. Uh, when they first asked him if he wanted to be trained in enhanced interrogation techniques. John, if you can tell that story, I think they knew then that you were going to be an issue. Uh, yeah, they, they thought back in, two, in 2002 I was going to be a problem. I, w- I went to the cafeteria one day. I had been back from Pakistan just a couple of weeks. I went to the CIA cafeteria for lunch, and a senior officer in the CIA's counterterrorism center saw me there and stopped me and said, hey, I'm so glad that I ran into you. wanted to ask you if you wanted to be certified in the use of enhanced interrogation techniques. Well, I had never heard the term before. Mind you, this is, this is the middle of May of 2002. So I said, well, what's that mean? And he got very excited, and he, he said, we're going to start getting rough with these guys. And I said, well, what's that mean? And he said that, uh, that the Justice Department had approved or was in the process of approving these, uh, these 10 techniques. And I said, ooh, that sounds like a torture program to me. I don't think I want to be involved in that. But let me think about it for an hour. And I sought the counsel of a very senior CIA officer who agreed with me and said, this is a torture program. Torture is a slippery slope. Somebody's going to get killed. Then there's going to be an investigation, and somebody's going to go to prison. So I went back down to the counterterrorism center and said, this is a torture program. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Um, they, had, they had approached 14 officers, and I was the only one of the 14 who said no. And then I was passed over for promotion. Now, I had just captured Abu Zubaydah, who we thought was the highest-ranking al-Qaeda official ever to be captured. And I was passed over for promotion. And in my promotion panel, Jose Rodriguez, who at the time was the head of counterterrorism at the CIA, he went on to become the deputy director for operations, He told my promotion panel, and these were his exact words, I got it in writing, he told them that I had exhibited a shocking lack of commitment to counterterrorism because I did not want to be trained in the torture techniques. So I'm sure, as Joe says, I'm sure I was on their radar from 2002 as a potential troublemaker. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, there, there are just a couple of loose ends I want to ask you about, John. You uh, mention in the book that the rapport techniques used by Ali Soufan identified Jose Padilla uh, and that he, uh, 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 Abu Zubaydah, named Padilla 
uh, and that led to his arrest. And Padilla had his own nightmare experience, uh, innocent or guilty. Uh, he was held at the brig in Charleston, subjected to a lot of uh, Guantanamo-type uh, tactics, uh, and ultimately uh, they changed the charges on him and uh, put him away without a trial uh, for, I think, for life. Uh, I've always been intrigued by his case, mostly for the way it was staged, managed in public by John uh, Ashcroft. Yes. yes, and that's exactly what it was. It was stage managed. The truth of the matter is that Jose Padilla was just an idiot. He was one of these guys who was a malcontent. He never got along with anybody. He probably had um, developmental uh, issues, not bright at all, low IQ. Uh, and he just wanted to feel like he was a part of something. And so he he made a, an odd um, conversion to Islam. And I say odd because he really didn't know anything about Islam. He thought it was kind of cool. And he, he took a very unusual name, too, um, Muhajir, which means the man who makes uh, the Hajj. It's not one of the 99 names of God. It's just kind of a made-up name. And so I think that in the end, he was just a sad sack who got in over his head and and couldn't get out. Well, Abu Zubaydah gave Ali Sufan the name and um, said that that Padilla was, was going to uh, detonate a dirty bomb. Well, just like the, the Khalid Sheikh Mohammed alleged plot to attack the West Coast, it never progressed beyond you know, a couple of guys sitting around a campfire in the desert saying, hey, you know what we should do? We should blow up a dirty bomb. You know what we should do? We should fly planes into the tallest building in Los Angeles. That's not a plot. Uh, but as you said, Attorney General Ashcroft stage-managed it and made it sound not just like a plot, but like an imminent attack on the United States, the likes of which we would not be able to respond to. And that just simply wasn't true. And and again, uh, innocent or guilty, uh, the way he was handled, and uh, it was, you know, he was in isolation when he went to the dentist. They gave him the, the butt plug and the, uh, the headphones and the goggles and all that stuff. Uh, it, it's just amazing uh, how he was mistreated, and uh, nobody really has raised an issue or batted an eye about it. And mind you, this is an American citizen right. who has constitutional rights. Those rights were purposely uh, ignored, and um, and he was charged in a military venue and was kept in a brig, as you pointed out, in Charleston, South Carolina. So this guy didn't even get the, the normal protections that any American citizen would get in a court of law. Yeah. All right, another stray idea. Michael Scheuer is mentioned once or twice in the book. He ran the ALEC unit at the CIA, the bin Laden desk. And I had a number of strange interviews with him after he published some books, first uh, uh, anonymously, and then he uh, lifted his self-imposed cover. Uh, is Michael Scheuer credible, John? Wow. It sounds like such a simple question. And it's uh, so difficult. You know, Mike, Mike Scheuer was an exceptional analyst. And before anybody was taking Osama bin Laden seriously or al-Qaeda seriously, it was Mike Scheuer who was on his trail. And nobody wanted to listen to Mike Scheuer until 9-11. Well, then finally the CIA decided this issue is too important to have an analyst leading it. And Scheuer was sort of deposed 
when I was the chief of counterintelligence in Alex Station, I sat 10 feet from Mike. He's a very nice guy. Nobody in, in the world knows a much, as much about Al-Qaeda as Mike does. But I have found Mike also to be something of a, of a hard-right ideologue mm-hmm. to the point where he's, he's irrational on some of these issues, especially as they relate to torture. And in addition... You know, there's a very controversial figure at the CIA, a woman who has been described uh, at length in the press as um, as a redhead, uh, even identified as the redheaded devil. And and who, I I, uh, c- I can name her even if you can't. Her name is. I, I uh, cannot I cannot name her, but I will tell you that she and Mike Scheuer were recently married. Oh my God! And so and so whatever whatever shred of credibility Mike Scheuer had, he lost it on his wedding day, as far as I'm concerned. Wow. Uh, her name is Bukowski, if uh, anybody wants to look her up. And I went public with her name years ago, and I've been waiting for that knock on the door, but <laughs> it it hasn't happened. Thank you for your candid response there. And, uh, gentlemen, I, I have one more question for each of you, and then I, I have a, a separate issue I want to talk to John about. Uh, and my question is not loaded. It's just a simple, uh, do you believe the official narrative of 9-11 as published by the 9-11 Commission report? And the reason I ask is that so many nefarious things have spawned from 9-11. And I'm one of those people who is skeptical of the official narrative. And I attended the hearings of the 9-11 Commission, and I found them to be just a, a kind of charade game, uh, much to the uh, you know uh, uh, sadness of the Jersey girls who helped prompt uh, the formation of the commission. Uh, so let me start with you, Joe. Do you accept the general narrative of the 9-11 story? Generally, I do. I, I, I believe al-Qaeda was behind 9-11. Uh, I believe that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was the mastermind. I believe that Osama bin Laden was, you know, financed it and, and wanted this to happen. Uh, as far as uh, what I don't, what I question... I guess is uh, the Saudi connection, mm-hmm. and uh, and just a few other things. Mainly, the Saudi connection is really uh, what I really question of, of what happened, and and some of the key players. I think there's other key players that the nine eleven commission did not mention. All right, and John, uh, I, I know you know more than we do because of uh, all of the secrets that uh, were shared with you, but based on. Uh, the publicly available narrative, is it credible? Um, I agree with Joe. For the most part, I think it's credible. Uh, I was in the CIA, in the, in the Counterterrorism Center, in the, in the months leading up to 9-11, in, in the year uh, leading up to 9-11, and I saw how my colleagues were panic-stricken that something terrible was going to happen. I addressed the issue in my first book, The Reluctant Spy. So, yeah, I, I agree with Joe that that Osama bin Laden um, was the financier of the 9-11 attacks. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was the one who designed the attacks. But I also agree with Joe that that the issue of official Saudi involvement has never been addressed. If anything, I think it's probably been covered up. Uh, there were two princes, two Saudi princes, whose names and numbers we found in Abu Zubaydah's uh, address book. And as soon as we started asking questions about them, one was mysteriously killed in a car accident, and the other one died of thirst while camping in the desert mm. in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't think those questions have ever been answered. And, 
you know, I, I'm not an engineer and I'm not an architect, and I really don't understand why Building 7 collapsed in New York that day. Thank you. Um, it's just never, I think it's just never been appropriately explained. Well, and and this is a, a kind of twisted attempt at humor around a, a very serious topic, but I think the building had to come down because the BBC had already reported it. You know, I've heard that so many times. I, I wish I wish we could go back and and just watch the whole thing happen in slow motion so that we could get to the bottom of this. It, it's a true mystery. Yeah. And, John, finally, I want to ask you about the uh, recent exposure of a woman named Reality Winner. And she leaked a an NSA document to The Intercept and was actually uh, picked up, uh, exposed, and, and picked up by the government before The Intercept uh, actually published uh, what she had sent them. And uh, you were burned by the same journalist, and I want to get your reaction to this because we're told The Intercept is conducting an internal investigation, uh, but we haven't seen any even preliminary uh, reports from that. And uh, I really think that this was a, a very serious uh, lapse in uh, investigative journalism that is uh, putting this woman uh, at risk of a lengthy jail term for a document that really didn't prove anything. Yeah, the Peter, document... Peter, you, Peter, you have to let me respond on this, too. Okay. Sure <laughs> enough. Okay. Go for it, Joe. Go for it. You go, go first, it. Joe. Okay. Uh, the, the journalist from The Intercept was Matthew Cole. Mm-hmm. And Matthew Cole, uh, when I went forward reporting three deaths in Guantanamo, I was talking to Brian Ross. Matthew Cole was working for Brian Ross at the time. And I was, uh, I was still in the military. I was very, very stressed. I had to go public with my story. I already went to the FBI, the Justice Department. Nothing worked, so I was going public with the story. And we uh, was ready to go. Brian Ross filmed me. We were ready to go with the story. They wanted a response from, they wanted a response from the Pentagon, and my attorneys told them get a response. Don't tell them who the soldier is, but you can get a response. Matthew Cole called the Pentagon and said, "There's this soldier, Staff Sergeant Joe Hickman, has came forward saying that uh, these three men, their deaths weren't accident. They weren't suicides." He, he leaked my name to the Pentagon while I was still in the military. And uh, the repercussions were ridiculous from the military from that. But, but it, was, uh, it was absolutely unprofessional. It got me in a lot of hot water that I'm not even going to talk about. But it was uh, – and, and the, you know, the Pentagon responded, and they told him, oh, he was, uh, he was just a uh, – perimeter guard. He wouldn't have had access to prisoners, which I've proven wrong time and time again. I was military intelligence in Guantanamo. But uh, he and he took the government's word for it, and they never ran the story, and I was left dealing with the Pentagon after that. Wow. Uh, Matthew Cole really, uh, really hurt me at the time. Joe, thanks for piping up. I was not aware of that, uh, that you had been burned as well. So, John, now to you and your version. Yeah, um, Matthew Cole uh, was single-handedly responsible for putting me in prison. Matthew Cole approached me in 2008 and said that he was writing a book on the CIA's rendition program. I told him I didn't know anything about rendition. I couldn't help him. And so he sent me 
a list of a dozen names and said, can you introduce me to any of these people? I said, no, I don't know them. He sent me a second list of a dozen names. I didn't know any of those people either. And I said, Matthew, you obviously know this issue so much better than I do. I, I just, kidnapping wasn't my thing. I just don't know anything about the renditions program. Then he said, what about the guy you mentioned in your book? I think his name is John. And I said, oh, you're talking about John Doe. Um, I don't know whatever happened to him. He's probably retired and living in Virginia somewhere. Well, as it turned out, Matthew Cole was not writing a book. There was no book. He was secretly working as an investigator for the Guantanamo defense attorneys. So he took the name that I had confirmed and sent it to the defense attorneys through another investigator named John Sifton. The, investiga- the, uh, the defense attorneys put the name in a classified motion and asked the judge to allow them permission to interview this officer. The judge recognized this name as classified and turned it over to the FBI. So the FBI got a warrant for the Guantanamo attorney's emails. They found an email to them from John Sifton. Then they got a, an, uh, a court order to go into Sifton's emails and found uh, the email to them from Cole. Well, Cole, as Joe pointed out, was working for ABC News at the time. He was a working journalist. Now, it would be front-page news if the FBI had gone into the emails of a working journalist. The FBI says that they did not, which leaves only one conclusion, that Matthew Cole ratted me out to the FBI, that the FBI approached him and said, who was your source? And Matthew Cole said, my source was John Kiriakou. And the next thing I know, I'm facing 45 years in prison. A death sentence is what it comes down to. So fast forward now, nine years, Matthew Cole is working for The Intercept, reality winner, sends in, uh, anonymously really, sends in um, a report that I believe should not have even been classified in the first place. It was an analytic piece. Mm-hmm. It contained no sources and methods. Right. Ma- Matthew Cole is supposed to be a national security journalist. At least that's how he bills himself. Well, anybody, any moron in Washington knows that NSA, when you print a document at NSA, it includes a microscopic identifier. It's the size of a pinhead, and it has your name and your employee number embedded in it every time you print a page on an NSA printer. So Matthew Cole took the original document that Reality Winter, or I'm sorry, Reality Winter sent to him. He sent it to a quote-unquote friend at NSA to verify its authenticity. The friend immediately turned it over to the FBI, and just as as the Intercept is publishing the article, Reality Winner is arrested and charged with espionage. So Matthew Cole, it seems like as a vocation, ruins people's lives, either because he's so bad at his job, he just simply can't do it appropriately, or he's a government informant. I don't know which. Well, you sure answered my question, both of you. Thank you very much. I want to recommend your new book, The Convenient Terror. It's subtitled Two Whistleblower Stories of Torture, Terror, Secret Wars, and CIA Lies. David Talbot, a very talented San Francisco writer, offered an introduction, the foreword by Jason Leopold. It's out now uh, at bookstores and available at Amazon. My thanks to John Kiriakou and Joe Hickman. Keep blowing the whistle, guys. We need it. Thanks. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for listening to this in-depth interview with Joe Hickman and John Kiriakou. 
I welcome your comments. Email Peter at PeterBCollins.com. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails.